we exist to come alongside people who are hurting, who are broken, who are messed up, to come alongside them and give them love and to give them grace and to give them encouragement until they can rise above it and walk on that path on their own. We are Pathway Church, located in Burleson, Texas. We worship together, we serve together, and we grow together. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we stop here at the beginning point of this message and in the middle of this worship, God, just to say that you are a good, good father. And all of life, all of human life, all of existence comes from your heart, from your soul, from your spirit. You are the genesis. You are the beginning. You are the alpha and the omega of everything. And we are your daughters and we are your sons. And God, in your great love and your great wisdom and understanding of us as humans, you knew that on this earth we would need to be raised in families. And that somehow in this experience of family, God, there would be a dad, a grandfather, an uncle, maybe a stepfather, maybe a neighbor, maybe a coach, maybe a teacher who would step into a unique role in our lives to show us your love, to show us your courage, to show us your compassion, to show us your tenderness, to show us your strength, to show us your grit, and to show us your patience. And some of us, Father, have had the good good fortune of being born into a house where there was a dad who did just that. Some have not. Some receive that gift along the way at another place upon their journey. And for that, God, we say thank you. We thank you, God, for this species that you created called men. Particularly those who reflect the goodness of your heart. So help us, God. We who are men, help us. Help us imitate you. Help us have your heart. Help us love our family like you love them. Help us love kids like you love them. Help us to be more like Jesus. And now, God, for all of us that are online, that are in the house, whether we're here physically in the space or we're somewhere else in the world, we open up your word, your love letter to us, and we ask you to speak and to touch us as only you can. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to find them and go into that little book in the back of your Bible called the book of James. We're in the third week of a message series. Uh, We're calling How Do I? And today we're going to look at what it means to have saving faith. We're going a little bit deeper this morning. What it means to have a saving faith. And what does it mean to actually be a part of this? Something called the great inversion. You're going to learn this morning about the great inversion. That sometimes you and I look at life and we think this is what makes a person successful. This is what makes a person powerful. And sometimes we look at people that we think are strong and they're really weak. And then you look at somebody over here that you look upon as being weak. You look upon somebody as being, not being successful. Somebody who's not figured out the secret of life, but you wind up discovering they are strong. 
That's really what James is going to address here, this great inversion, what it means to have saving faith in Jesus this morning. When I was in high school, I had the privilege of doing a whole lot of things, and one of them was being musicals, and I happened to be in a musical uh, called uh, The Fiddler on the Roof. And Fiddler on the Roof has this key character whose name is Tevye, a milkman. It just so happened my grandfather was a milkman. I did a lot of stuff like that with him. And so I landed this role. And the cool part about this role was about all the lines in the music that this role got to sing. And one of the stuff you ever heard about this song, this, uh, this, this show, you know, you're familiar with, If I was a rich man, remember that song? You want me to sing that? Not going to happen. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. That was those back in the day. But that song was so, so powerful. And here's some words from that song. I want you to read it. This reflection of our world. If I were rich, the most important men in town would come to fawn on me. They would ask me to advise them like Solomon, like Solomon the wise, posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. And it won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong when you're rich. They think you really know. When you're wealthy, when you're rich, they think you're, you have the secret of life, that you're powerful, that you know something nobody else knows, and, and you figured it out. And if you're poor, if you got nothing, well, then somehow or another, you don't have discovered the secret of life. James is going to meet that head on this morning. Of what it really means to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he's going to hit some of us right between the eyes. I mean, he's going to hit you right in the gut and turn upside down a great inversion of what you really think life is all about and what you think what following Jesus is about, and he's going to flip it all upside down. And so to do that, i got to give you a little context or you can't even understand the Scriptures. So I'm going to go back in time in history, James and the ancient world, the time either when James wrote this letter, and I know this is going to be time consuming. I'm going to do it as tight as I can and as fast as I can. Please be patient. I think you'll find the reward when we finally get to the scriptures. So this is the context in which James, the brother of Jesus, writes this little letter. In your notes, number one, in the ancient world, when James writes this letter, social status was determined by a person's worth. When James writes this letter, the Roman Empire has this great divide. And the first thing you're going to find that one part of the population, 2% of the population was called the elite. These were the powerful, wealthy people in the Lord who had the highest status, only 2%. Cicero said, we have got to maintain high, high status. And there were three different groups in the top 2% of the population. The first group were the senators. There were 600 of them. They were all wealthy, had influence, authority, and power. The next group was the equestrians. They also were wealthy, wealthy enough to have horses. So when you went into battle, they weren't on foot. They would actually have a horse. That gave them an advantage. And then you have the decurions. The decurions are the people who sat in a lower level office who had authority in some sort of administrative work. Now, he's going to say that the, these people right here are the most influential and powerful people in Rome. They have status. They have influence. Then you have the next group, the 98%. They're called the vulgus, V-U-L-G-U-S. That's where you and I get the word vulgar. That's where we get that word. And there are two groups of people in the vulgar. That is the freedmen, people who were slaves that bought their freedom, and the actual slaves themselves. 
And Caesar's saying at the very top of the ladder, when I'm at the top of the ladder and I look down and I see all these people, this makes me feel better about myself to see people below me. You will not find that statement in the Bible. You will never find Jesus saying any sort of statement like that at all. And as you read the scriptures from Israel to the Hebrew people to Jesus, we're going to discover that it's not that social status determines a person's worth, which is the first concept, that social status, that all people are equally of worth in God's eyes. Here's point number two in that time. The social chasm between the poor, that is the non-elite, and the rich, that is the elite, was like the difference between an ant and a camel. If you were an ant... You might dream of being a camel, but you'd never be a camel. It's impossible. You will never get there. And in this society, if you were poor, if you were on the lower levels of the society of the 98%, you might dream, but you'll never have a chance to get there. And here's why. Number three, society was constructed around recognizing and preserving the status that's how society was set up. Some of you know about that. You're, you have elite status when you fly. You fly a lot. You have many, many miles. And not only that, you fly first class. So you're called elite status. And sometimes in some airplanes, they still have the red carpet where you would walk in on the red carpet while everybody else who doesn't have elite status, you're sitting watching the elite board the plane. You're part of the 98%. And you sit back here in the back and you watch. And by the time you get on the plane, the elite already have their wine and their oysters sitting back in their lazy boy chair watching a movie. And you walk in and you see them already being cared for. That's exactly the situation that's happening right here in the scriptures. And they're talking about the way this is divided up. Three different ways, I would say, how they preserve the status. The first one is clothing and jewelry. If you were the elite of the elite, you got to wear a toga. But the toga was complicated. You couldn't put it on yourself. So you had a servant learn the skill of putting the toga on you. That's why you see in so many of the movies of the old days where you'd have a servant dressing the other person. That's where that began in the, in the old Roman Empire and the toga. And the toga was a symbol of status. And the actual name for toga was to, toga virilis. That's the basic toga. That's where you and I get the word virile. Now, there was one gender that was not allowed to wear the toga. Somebody tell me who it was. It was the woman. Women are not virile. Women, no toga for you if you were female, okay? But if you were a senator, you had a toga with a purple stripe up the side of it to signify you were set apart even from the equestrians. But if you were an equestrian and you wanted to aspire to be a senator, you would wear a dazzling white pure toga called a toga candidatus. It's where you and I get the word candidate for someone who wants to aspire to a higher level of office. Also, if you're an equestrian, you could wear a gold ring. Hang on to that thought. We're going to read about that in James. And a gold ring was a level of status. No one could wear it. It was against the law, even if you could afford it, to wear the gold ring if you were not an equestrian. So they used clothing and apparel to set apart. These are the important people. The next way they did it is seating at public events. 
Seating at a public or a private event was all about status. Now, in our day, it's not that way. If you have enough money, you can buy a ticket and you can sit in any seat you want to. That wasn't the case back here. If you went to a public or a private event, you would have to sit in a certain section. And when you would look around, you would see the pecking order to see where you fit in and value and worth in society. Now, we still have some little portion of that today uh, in, in our world. That you might go buy tickets to go see a musical or some sort of play. And you might look at your tickets and you paid a whole lot for them. Say, it says the orchestra section. So you actually go sit in the orchestra section. You're not really sitting with the orchestra. Because the orchestra is down in the pit. Now, back in the Greek days of the Greek play, the orchestra is where we get the Greek, where we get the word dancer. The word orchestra is the orchestrating of the dancer. So back in the day, if you were a senator, you would automatically sit in the orchestra section in the pit with the orchestra. And not only that, on the edge of the orchestra is where the dancers and the musical would sit. And so as a celebrity, as a senator, you would get to sit on the edge of the stage and wave at everybody. And all everybody would see you because you're famous and the dancers would sit next to you. Somebody tell me, when you go to a professional, particularly basketball game that just finished, who do they normally show on the camera sitting on the front row of the professional basketball games? Who is it? Celebrities. Still have a little remnant about that hanging on around here. Something about that front row and to show that you're a celebrity. When you got invited to a banquet, a few and I get invited to a banquet, we look, hey, where am I going to sit? And we make that decision based on a friend, somebody I could talk to, somebody I could have a conversation with, not back here in the scripture days when James writes it. When you go to a banquet, the first thing that happens is you find out who's the most important person in the room. And the most important person in the room is the host. They have the highest status. And the host always sits at the end of the table. And the host's job, in this case, if I'm the host, is to see the people that are intended and to find out who has the highest rank. And they will sit to my right in the first seat right of me. That's called the guest of honor. That's where we get the term guest of honor. And the third most authority person in the room will sit to my left in the chair just to my left. Now, if you're a Bible person, you now understand a little bit more of the story of James and John who go to Jesus and say, Jesus, when you come into your own, when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit at the right and one of us sit at the left? See, all the disciples understood. James and John weren't saying, hey, Jesus, we want to sit close to you just so we can have a conversation. You're our friend. They were saying, when you get into heaven, we know Jesus, you will sit in the chair of honor, the highest honor. But we want to sit in seats two and three to have the most status and the most prestige in the eyes of everybody. And so all the other disciples get ticked off because they're all fighting for what's left, seats four through 12. Seating was all about your status, about the honor you have in the kingdom. Here's the third and final thing of how they preserve it and recognize it, and that's the legal system. The legal system was only put into play to preserve the status quo. Now, you and I believe the legal system is for equal justice for everybody, that the law is no respecter of persons. 
that no matter what your gender, what your color, what your social economic background, whatever there is about you, that you have a right to justice just like anybody else. That's not the way it was when James writes his letter. If you were a person of status, the legal system exists to help you preserve your status. You could walk into a, a courtroom where you had nothing to do with the crime and, or, or that you weren't even a part of the trial, and you could speak and have somebody thrown in the jail because they wronged you for any purpose. Many stories about this. If you were a citizen and you did something wrong, you're a senator, you're an equestrian, uh, you could go to trial, but you could not be executed. You might be exiled for a period of time. Crucifixion, that is execution, was only reserved for slaves. Persia invented crucifixion. Romans perfected it. And when they crucified someone, they just weren't saying you're guilty of, uh, as charged. They are saying you are the lowest of the low. You have no value. You have no worth. You are a despicable human being, the lowest person on the face of the earth. And one day, in the middle of all of this, a new community started in the middle of Rome, this perfect little society. And the leader, the leader of this community was a crucified guy. The person they loved the most, the person they admired the most, the person they followed and respected the most was a guy that was crucified who was said, you are the littlest of the, you are the nothing. And that is the context in which James is writing this letter. And if you do not understand that, you cannot understand what we're about to read. And you're going to find that this writing was radical back in the day that he writes it. And I would contend, for many of us here, it's radical today. Because on the surface of your life, you say, that's not me. I don't act that way. I don't believe in status. I don't believe in uh, kind of kowtowing the people that are higher up and higher. And yet our behaviors show otherwise. Let's read James chapter 2. Just excuse me, James chapter 1, verse 27. We'll start there. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Must not show favoritism. You cannot combine your faith in Jesus Christ with showing favors toward other people according to their rank, according to their worth, according to their privilege or power. God has no favorites. God loves everybody. In your notes, number one, everybody is of equal worth. Everybody. But in Rome... They didn't buy into that. We believe it here, at least in practice. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men, all women, all people are created what? At least in ideal, we say it. In practice, not so much. We say we believe it, but not in practice. And so that is why over and over and over again in the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament, 
God has no favors. God has no favors. God has no favors. God has no favors. That is why Peter, who would say all the time, his favors are the Jewish people. His favors is Israel. Finally, when the Holy Spirit comes on him, he would say in Acts chapter 2, no, 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 God has no favors. Everybody is welcome into his presence. That's why the apostle Paul to the church of Ephesus and the church of Colossae, he says multiple times, God has no favors. Favoritism is not good. But then James writes about it, and James writes before the Apostle Paul. It's the first we believe of the letters written. And interesting enough, in the Greek-Roman Empire, they had no word for the sin of playing favorites because they didn't think it was a sin. And so James makes up his own word to create a word to describe, don't have favorites. And here's what the word really means. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not look up to anyone and show favoritism to anyone because of their position or because of their authority or because of their money or because of their status. Hey, can I want to sit by you? Hey, I want to get to know you because you might help me get this job. You might help my, my, my business grow. You might do something for me. You might help Jesus out. Boom, boom, boom. And you do it based on who you see they are. And James is going, none of that. God doesn't show favorites. He goes on. Chapter 2, verse 2, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. There's the gold ring. See it? There's the gold ring. A man wearing a gold ring and the clothes, fine clothes, that is dazzling white clothes like an equestrian, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, of course they're going to do that. That's what they've been trained to do. That's what everybody does. Of course they're going to do that. But say to the poor man, hey, you stand here or you sit on the floor by my feet at the lowest place. Of course they're going to do that. That's the culture and the world in which they live. But if you do that, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here's what Jesus is saying. Let me tell you a story. Hey, you're at church. You're at church. And, and a man wearing a gold ring comes into your church. Now, interestingly, you go back and read the text in the Greek. It doesn't say actually gold ring because there was no word put together in the Greek for gold ring. It comes across and you typically interpret it as gold-fingered. If a gold-fingered man comes walking into your church, that's literally how it reads. Anybody ever see the movie Goldfinger? Anybody about this powerful, rich dude who's going to dominate and control the world, who knows it all and has everything, whatever, and he's just going to dominate everything because he's the highest person on the totem pole. And Everybody remember seeing that movie? And See, I really think this movie came out of the idea of this verse right here. That movie came from the Bible, right? Well, this person of authority is going to get taken out by James Bond. The bond of love. The, John, the bond of love destroys Goldfinger. And that was supposed to be a dad joke and you were supposed to laugh. Oh, man. But that's right there in the Bible, the movie called Goldfinger. I know it's a reach. Just stay with me, okay, or whatever. And then it says, right, not only does he have a gold ring, but he has on fine clothes. An equestrian who wants to ascend up the ladder to a high place. He's wanting to, he, he comes in. And you say to him, hey, you ragged guy, dressed poorly, you have no education. You have no status. You have no name at the front of your name. 
Nobody knows who you are. We really don't care to know about who you are. Why don't you come sit here at my feet and we'll just step over you and please don't get in the way of our gathering. And James says, that's not okay. My brother says, my crucified brother, that's not okay. In your notes, number two, Jesus followers don't, do not connect with people just based on their status. That's the way of the world. The world, we connect to people based on who they are and their status and their reputation. But when the world gets into the church... And when the world gets into you and me, it's not okay. And James is saying, it's not okay. It's not acceptable for those who say they are followers of Jesus. And then he goes on, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are rich in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God? But you... You have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are inviting you into court who are dragging? Yes, it's exactly what they're doing. The system was set up that way for the wealthy and the powerful and the positions. And when you do that, you're dishonoring the kingdom. You're dishonoring the poor. Do you realize what you're doing? See, James is turning everything upside down. If you think the book of James is just a little nice little book to help you live a better life, to give you tidbits on how to be a better person, you're missing the whole purpose of this book. This book is an invitation into a new reality called the kingdom of God, where God is turning everything upside down that you believe to be true of what is right and how the world is to function. Dallas Willard puts it this way. I love this little quote. The great inversion, God is turning everything upside down. This transcends human arrangements, culture, politics, everything. The great inversion involves this thought among many others. In Christ, there are none in the humanly down position so low they cannot be lifted up by entering God's order. And there are none in the humanly up position so high that they can disregard God's point of view on their lives. This is not saying that if you're poor, God automatically loves you. And it is not saying that if you're wealthy, God automatically is concerned about you. And God has uh about you. This is what it's saying in your notes number three. Poverty tends to make people see their need for God. And wealth tends to make people blind to their needs for God. Wealth, humanly speaking, makes you think that you are safe, you are secure, you are smart, you are strong, you are successful. You got your act together. And spiritually thinking, wealth means that you are at danger of thinking and believing you got it all and you're set And you're really not. James continues to read. Look over here at 
chapter 1, verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. God loves me. God cares for me. God is with me. I know that. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Any successful people in here, don't raise your hand. Anybody here have that little verse in their office? I take pride in my humiliation. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. And that is why so many wealthy people don't like to read the book of James. And that is why so many of us here in this room and online, most of us would classify in the case of wealthy, need to read this book over and over and over again. Because you and I live in a world that teaches us to value people based on how much they make, the letters before their name, their education, the size of their house, the color of their skin, how fit they are, how handsome they are, how beautiful they are, and we overlook and just step over people and ignore people that are priceless in the eyes of God. A few years ago, there was a family who was having a garage sale, but they had it online. And they had this little vase that their cat slept in. And they said, what the heck, we'll, we'll, we'll put it on the auction, we'll put it on the yard sale online. They put $5 on it. Some people started seeing this thing, and the value went out the roof because they saw it as something from the China Ming Dynasty. They wound up selling it for over $100,000. They let their cat sleep in a vase from the Ming Dynasty. It wasn't even a dog. It's a dirty cat. That's a true story. Here's a parable. Guy walks into an antique store. He sees his cat drinking milk out of this little bitty little vase, this saucer, and he goes instantly, that's from the Ming Dynasty. What are they doing? I got to have that vase. I got to buy that. I can't tell the owner. He can't know how much that is worth. So we start thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He says, I know what I'm going to do. He says, hey, listen, I'd like to buy your cat. Oh, the cat's not for sale. Oh, it's got to be. I love that cat. Well, there's nothing special about the cat. It's just a cat. Yeah, but it's special to me. I'll give you $500 for the cat. He said, okay, cat's yours. Hey, and by the way, I need something to feed that cat. So can you let me have that little vase? I tell you, I'll, I'll throw in 50 bucks you know, for the little saucer thing so I, so I can feed my cat. He said, oh, no, you can't have the saucer for 50 bucks for sure. I mean, that thing came from the Ming Dynasty. That thing is worth more than anything that I own in this whole store and everything like that, you know. But it's an amazing thing. Ever since I've been putting milk in that little thing, I've sold 18 cats. <laughs> and you and I think, that guy's brilliant. He is successful, so strategic. That's the ways of the world. When he puts something that was priceless on the ground and let animals eat out of it. And that's exactly what James is saying. Priceless 
people you have laying on the ground. You ignore them. You step over them. And to God, they are priceless treasures. And to you, they're just junk. And you have no idea how much they are worth. But you see somebody in nice clothes. You see somebody driving a nice car. You see somebody living in a nice house. You see somebody all strutting around. They got a, you go, whoa, I want to get to the... It's a funny thing about having nice clothes. They cost money, don't they? It's a funny thing about having nice clothes and having clean nice clothes. It costs money to clean them. And so there's a bunch of church people that goes into a laundromat. And all these poor folks who have no laundry things at home, and they just start put, paying $5 a load, just, just paying for it, just paying for all their, their, clo- their, their, their clothes and their laundry. A guy walks in and says, man, what's going on here? And another guy was there that was not a church person will say, you know, I don't know exactly what's going on, but I, I, these people say they, they go to church, and so I think they're just doing what their God does. They were doing exactly what their God does. Who was rich. And he emptied himself and became poor. And he was born in a manger. And he took off his dazzling white kingdom clothes and put on rags. That is who our Savior is. And my question is, do you really believe that? Do you believe that is the way of the kingdom? Do you believe, have that kind of faith in this man named Jesus? That that's who he is. But we bought into this idea that's so different and so so totally totally upside down on what the scripture describes, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And see, here's what's happened. Sin has gotten into our reticular activating system. Let me say that again. Sin has gotten into our reticular activating system. That is the nervous system in your brain. That when you see something, you automatically believe this about it, even though it is not true, and your mind just fixates on it. Such as, when you decide that you want to buy a schnauzer, and all of a sudden you look around and you think, everybody has a schnauzer. Because everywhere you look, you see schnauzers. Because it's fixed in your mind all of a sudden. You decide you're going to buy a certain kind of truck. Certain color, certain model, certain all this. And then all of a sudden you see them everywhere. You think, well, wow, everybody has that sort of truck. Because in your mind, you now see it in your reticular activating system. And James is saying sin has gotten in your reticular activating system. And you see people not for who they are, but who your sin says they are. And you cannot get that out of your mind or your spirit by yourself. You will fail because the world reinforces it in which you live. We're really talking about what does it mean to really believe in Jesus? What does it mean to say I'm a follower of Jesus? That's the core question. And James is addressing a problem that there are people who say they believe in Jesus, but their behaviors and their emotions reveal that if they really don't believe. Let me see if I can teach this like this. In the time we have left, I think I can do this. Back when I lived in Odessa, long, 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 over 30 years ago, I was invited to go paragliding into Taos in New Mexico. 
And so I go with this guy, and we get up there in the mountains of, of New Mexico, and we're sitting down away from the cliffs, from the mountains over here on the floor. And this instructor comes, and he sits down and says, here's your shoe. It's safe. I promise you it's safe. Here are all the buckles. Here are all the belts are safe. He pulls them and everything. I'm an instructor. Hey, I promise you, you're going to be perfectly safe when we go off that cliff. And over here, I believed 100% I was going to be perfectly safe when we jumped off that cliff until I got over here to the edge of the cliff. And all of a sudden, my sweaty palms didn't believe it. My stomach didn't believe it. My knees didn't believe it. My heart rate didn't believe it. You know what I believed? I believed I was going to die. I looked down at the bottom of that canyon, and I saw my dead body. I saw my son, my only son at that time, orphaned. I saw my wife, a widower, dating younger, sexier, more handsome, more athletic men. I said, I'm not jumping. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I No longer did I believe it. There are three levels of belief. This is not in your notes. This is a freebie. First of all, it's beliefs I think I believe, but I really don't. We all have these people in our life. It's, it's, it's the pastor. It's the religious leader. It's the salesman. It's the politician who's telling you things that they say they believe, but they really don't. And they're trying to convince you, but you can tell they really don't. That's one level of belief. Second level of belief is the belief where I believe, I really think I believe. I believe, I, at, least, at least I think I do. I mean, I'm over here. I mean, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I believe. I'm going to draw the cliff. Everything's going to be okay. But when I get over here, eh, I don't think I really believe it. That's the second level of belief. First level is manipulators who don't really believe it. They're just trying to manipulate you. And here's the third level of beliefs. It's my mental map. Somebody needs to write that down. My mental map about how things really are. You have a mental map. In your mind, you have a map about the way you really see people and the way you really see the world. Your map, your whole life is oriented around your mental map. You live at the mercy of your mental map. Please listen. Your behaviors and your emotional responses reveal your mental map. For example, I believe in gravity. I believe gravity is always at work. I so believe in gravity, I refuse to step off of tall buildings or cliffs. Because I believe gravity is already at work. And my belief in gravity saves me. Not by my works, not because I'm good. But because I've learned how to navigate the reality of living in the reality of gravity, that saves me. And G James asked a question. Can someone who says they believe in Jesus... But their behaviors and their emotions, when things get tough, reveal they don't. Does that person have saving faith? That's the question he's asking. Do they? Now, theologians have talked a lot about what is saving faith. And unfortunately, a lot of church people have dumbed it down to the bare minimum. And here's the deal. Jesus never says, hey, listen, you can't find it. Here's the bare minimum of what you got to believe to get into heaven. He never, ever, 
just want a bare minimum. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm it. You can trust me. What I say, it comes out of my mouth. You can trust it. What I do, you can trust it. I am that guy. You can trust me. What can you trust about Jesus? Everything. Everything. Not just a little bit. Everything. And here's the point that James is trying to make. Some of you can't get this, but over here in James chapter 2, verse 1, the scripture really is not translated the best way in the Greek. And we're going to put it on the screen so you get it, so you really get it. I hope somebody gets this. You don't combine the faith. It's not, here's the scripture. Don't combine the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism. It's not, don't combine the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism. It's not about just having the faith in Jesus, it's having the faith of Jesus. What's the faith of Jesus? It's what Jesus believed. It's Jesus' mental map. It's how he saw people. It's how he saw the world. Saving faith. It's having the faith of Jesus. What, save, what is it that saves me from nervousness? What saves me from anxiety? What saves me from worrying? What saves me from depression? What saves me from stupidity? What saves me from addiction? What saves me from wrath? What saves me from hell? It's not my belief in Jesus. It's my belief in the faith of Jesus. The faith that Jesus has in God. That's what saves me. In fact, in your notes... Saving faith is when I believe what Jesus believed. When I see people the way Jesus sees them. When I do what Jesus does. When I speak out of my mouth to people the truth in love the way Jesus does. And when I see people who are not educated instead of stepping over them. Or people who are not wealthy or position of power who don't believe in me. I stop and I look at them and see them as people that he has created and he loves because he does. That is the faith of Jesus, not faith in Jesus. Here's the mental map of Jesus. God is always watching over me. God is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil, Jesus can say. I'm afraid of nothing. Because nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am not anxious. I am not fearful. I am not sleepless. I do not toss and turn. I do not cower in the face of adversity. There is no trial. There is no cross that can separate me from the love of God. That is the mental map of Jesus. Here's the mental map of Jesus. Every Jew... Every Greek, every slave, every free, every male, every female, every straight, every gay, every trans, every black, every white, every brown, every Asian, every Roman, every Republican, every Democrat, every progressive, every proud boy. is noticed by the unspeakable love of God. And that makes them worth, Jesus says, me dying on the cross even for them. And that is the mind of Jesus.
Jesus, the faith of Jesus. So let me ask you, do you have faith in or do you have the faith of? If I have the faith of Jesus, the faith of Jesus, my reticular activating system believes it. My wallet believes it. My calendar believes it. My heart believes it. My palms believe it. My eyes believe it at night. I go to sleep. When, when trouble comes, my nervous system believes it. And I'm calm and steady and I get there quick because I know who Jesus is. And I will tell you, this is not just good news for you. If you learn to have the faith of Jesus, it's good for the orphan. It'll be good for the widow. It'll be good for the poor. It'll be good for your wife, men. It'll be good for your children, men. It'll be good for your grandchildren. Because you're the one that will be changed, not the world, you, to the kingdom of God's sort of living. The world is looking for people, not who believe in, who have the belief of Jesus, who will step off the cliff. Here's my wallet. Here's my calendar. Here's my heart. Just use me. Anybody here today be willing to jump off the cliff with me? Father, good, good Father, we thank you for this amazing place that's called the world. But sin, God, is just not in the world. It's gotten into our hearts. It's gotten into our minds and the way we judge and view and rate and classify people. The people we turn away from, the people we walk away from, the people we step over, the people. God, just forgive us, God. Just forgive us, God. In our spirit, there is so much envy, so much pride, so much bitterness, so much judgmentalism. There's so much just kind of jealousy and ego. So many desires, the desire, 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 desire to be wealthy and popular and known and all that. And we just, just forgive us, God. Just help us. Just help us to have the faith of Jesus. Not just in him, but of him. His faith. God, help us to have that his saving faith. Not for our sake, but for our family's sake, for our neighbor's sake, for America's sake, for our world's sake. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Father's Day, men. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information on Pathway or to get connected to a ministry, visit our website at pathway.church. We look forward to growing with you as we worship together. God loves you. God is with you.